Okay, so this week we're going to end chapter 8. But in the last verses of chapter 8, we get into uh, the doctrine of election and predestination. And it begins there and it continues all the way through chapters 9, 10, and 11. Okay? So today, in preparation for this, I need to make some presentation, a presentation that kind of overarches all of it, and then we'll look at these verses. This will be the only week I'm not taking questions, because until I present this, any question you ask would be wrong, okay? You don't have a chance. So, just sit and listen this week, and we'll go from there. Next week, it'll be open for questions, and you can ask your wrong questions. The, there is a doctrine that we talk about that Scripture is all-sufficient. Now, what do we mean by that? It does not mean that Scripture answers every question you need to know and you want to know about God and the things of God. The doctrine of Scripture being all-sufficient says simply, it will teach you what you need to know to be saved. To be saved. Not everything. To be saved. So as we begin to read the scriptures, we also realize that the scriptures are all we have. Uh, we cannot base our faith on what other people say. Uh, the early church fathers, Martin Luther, we don't base our faith on those things. They tried to write to explain the scriptures, but they're not always right. We don't believe everything Martin Luther said. Heavens, we don't want to believe everything Martin Luther said. But the fact is that that's the basis of everything. Scripture. And its purpose is to save us. To save us. So as we read the Scriptures, we realize that what we're being told in the scriptures is what God wants to reveal to us. And when we teach, we don't want to go beyond what he reveals. Therefore, there are many things that he tells us that 
are beyond us and do not answer all our questions. Doesn't answer. So I'll give you some examples of that. The teaching of the triune God. That God is one divine being, three persons. And that each person is fully and completely God, but there is only one God. No one can answer more than that. That is what God has revealed to us, and we can't go farther. So we want to ask, how can this be? How does this work? There are no answers given in Scripture. It is simply presented to us as the revealed Word of God. And that's why we call it an article of faith. An article of faith because we can't understand it completely and fully. You see, we're Western thinkers. Western thinkers want everything done according to reason and logic. And whenever we're presented with something, we automatically start thinking about reason and logic. Okay? So if we can't reason it out, or it's not logical to us, our tendency is not to believe it. The Christian faith calls on us to believe it. How can there be a triune God? He tells us there is, and we believe it. Another example. How do we know, or how do we understand the fact that the body and blood of Christ is really present in bread and wine when we celebrate the Lord's Supper? How can the body and blood he gave and shed so long ago still be given to us for the forgiveness of sins and the strengthening of our faith. <clears throat> There's no theologian on earth that can answer that question. You can explain it. We try to explain it with words, but words fail us. Again, we are presented with an article of faith. That's what God's Word says, and that's what we believe, teach, and confess. There cannot be rampant speculation based on what we think, because usually what we think is wrong. Our ways are not God's ways. 
So when we begin to factor in that there are things in Scripture that we simply cannot explain and understand, but are articles of faith, and we could list many. How can Jesus Christ be true man and true God in one person? I mean, we could just go on and on, but yet we believe these things because that's what God tells us in his word. And it all starts with faith in Jesus Christ. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, realizing what he's done for us, then we began to believe these other articles of faith. And we come to the point that we can say, God says it, I believe it. And even though the world says, how can you believe something that is that out of character with reason and logic, that's why it's called an article of faith. So, one of the articles of faith that cannot really be understood fully and answer every one of our questions <clears throat> is the doctrine of predestination. Now, you say, well, Lutherans don't believe in predestination. I hate to tell you this, but we do. Not the kind you're thinking of, which is that before the foundation of the world, God decided who would be saved and who would be damned in an arbitrary decision. But we believe in predestination in the sense that God calls people to faith. Now, let me say this also. The primary verse we have to deal with here <clears throat> is not in Romans. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And it's a little simple verse, and what it says is, God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It is the firm intention of God in sending Jesus Christ that everybody is saved. No one is left out. That is God's intention. That is what he wants. We always have to keep that in mind. That's God's real intention. So <clears throat> that's several factors that we need to keep in mind as we begin this discussion. So with those thoughts in mind, let's turn to Romans 8, verse 28.
When Dr. Luther was here last week, he should have been forced to explain this. This is a well-known verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. There are three things we need to talk about in this verse. For those who love God. That's not usually the way Paul phrases things. The way Paul usually phrases things is that God first loved us. Then we love God. But here it's for those who love God. That's because for chapter after chapter after chapter, Paul has been discussing that God loved us first. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And all those passages in Romans 4, 5, 6, 7, that tell us we have the victory and that God acted to love us first. Now, for those who love God, in other words, for those in faith who believe in the promises of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the promise. God loved us first, now we love him. And for those that love him, God works all things for good. Now, good does not mean nothing ever bad happens to you. Good does not mean you're going to be wealthy and rich. What good means is this. When you get to heaven someday, you're going to look back on your life and you're going to see that everything in your life, even the bad that happens, was worked in some way for your ultimate good. and worked in such a way that it will contribute to your life in Christ and may even be times it brought you to the faith. God can use evil within his plan to work good for you. You may not see that now, but you will someday. Now, one of the very clear verses that teaches this is in Genesis chapter 50. Jacob is dying. Israel is dying, and his sons gather around him, and he blesses him, and Jacob dies. Well, all the brothers are worried sick that now that Jacob's gone, okay, Joseph is going to enact revenge 
for throwing him in that pit and selling him into slavery. They're convinced that he is <clears throat> coming after them. And Joseph, uh, so they make up this story that Jacob told them to ask Joseph for forgiveness. Okay. Now, they kind of humiliate themselves in front of him. But then here's what Joseph tells them. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. All right, so Joseph has the spiritual sight to tell his brothers, when you threw me into that pit and sold me into slavery to get rid of me, you meant to do me harm. But God had a bigger plan. He used me being sold into Egypt as the very thing that saved lots of people. All of you, your families, brought you to Egypt so that many people lived. You meant it for harm. God worked good through it. Okay? God worked good through it. That's a, a specific example that you can point to of this passage in uh, Romans 8.28. So, you may not understand it now, but when bad things happen, God promises to use it for your eternal good. Now, not your good tomorrow, but your eternal good. The third thing is, for those who are called according to his purpose. <clears throat> what is his purpose? God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. The scriptures are all sufficient to show you salvation. God's intention is to save every human being. If you're called to his purpose, that means he has called you to be his child and to save you. To save you. All right? That's you. Today, as you hear this verse, you can apply it directly to yourself. Okay? That God is going to work in your life, even if evil comes, 
to work it for your eternal good because you are called according to his purpose. No one is called to God except in Jesus Christ. God does not arbitrarily decide, I'm going to like that guy. You cannot have a relationship with God except through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.4 says, Before the foundation of the world, in Him, God called us. In Him is Jesus Christ. You cannot have a relationship with God except in Jesus Christ. It's not just because God arbitrarily picked you. You're not worth picking. It's because in Christ. So this verse applies to you. Okay? This verse applies to you because you have faith in Jesus Christ. God has called you toward that purpose because he wants to save you as he does everyone. Okay? And he's going to work good according uh, to his purpose. Now let's go on. <clears throat> For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You have to keep foreknowledge separate from predestination. Otherwise, it screws up the whole thing. God, before the foundation of the world, knew who would be saved and who would be damned. But just because he knew it is not a cause of some being saved and some being damned. Now let me say that again. God knew who would be saved and who would be damned. But just because he knew it does not mean he puts specific obstacles in the path of some to make sure they got damned. That is what we call double predestination. That God arbitrarily before the foundation of the world says, you're damned, you're saved. And it's unalterable. Leaves Christ out of it. And it confuses foreknowledge with predestination. Foreknowledge is simply he knew. But predestination is different. Predestination is the action of God to save you. Okay? So it is God's intention that he save everybody. Here's what we can't figure out. 
if all of you were unbelievers and I stood up here and preached the gospel, some of you would come to faith and some of you would not. The Word of God is designed for the specific purpose of changing our hearts to hearts of faith. And there's only one thing that can get in the way. You. You reject the Word. You reject the Word. Now, I need to say this. The fact, predestination does not mean that God saw in the future that you'd believe. Doesn't mean that. Or, it doesn't mean he saw in the future that you're going to be such a bang-up person he picked you. Because every single person that's saved is a sinful person. Nobody earned it. So, he foreknew, but he predestined those to be conformed to the image of his Son. In other words, the image of God was in Adam and Eve when they were in the garden. They sinned. They lost the image of God totally and completely. Totally and completely. This says he wants to restore the image of God in those that believe in Jesus Christ. And he says that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of the dead, the one who conquered death and rose again. So in other words, what he's saying is he does foreknow, but those that come to faith in Jesus Christ through the working of God and His Holy Spirit are going to be conformed to the image of His Son, firstborn from the dead. This passage has nothing to do with those who do not believe. Zero. None of these verses at the end of chapter 8 apply to them. They apply to believers. So let's go on. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. When you get to heaven on the last day, and you're in heaven, and you see God face to face, you will be able to say, I was predestined to heaven. It's an accurate statement. You can say it now. There's a little tricky play on, on uh, verb tense here. 
and that's the word that he's going to predestine you, call you, justify you, and he also glorified. Notice it's past tense, as if it's already done. Your glorification in heaven is so certain, God talks about it as if it's already done. You can sit here today and say, I've been called by God. That's why I believe. He's worked faith in me through the Word. He's worked faith in me by the Holy Spirit. He's brought me to faith because it's His intention to save me. He's justified me. That is, He's made, uh, <clears throat> declared that I am right with Him. Okay? The righteousness of Christ is declared mine. And it's so certain that it's going to happen. It says, you're already glorified. It's that certain. Past tense. It's done. That's how certain it is. All right. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How can we not trust a God that sent us His own Son? How can we worry if others are against us if this is what God has done for us? And graciously, by His grace, undeserved, give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Nobody. Not even Satan on the last day can accuse you. He is the accuser. He cannot accuse you because, as it says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who has was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You can't be condemned because Jesus Christ is your Savior. He's been raised from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of God, and he's constantly praying for you. You beginning to get the picture? You're called. You're justified. Doesn't matter who's against you, God's for you. Nobody can condemn you. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and sits at the right hand of God and prays for you constantly. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And it's a rhetorical question. Nothing. None of these. We could make our own list. What can separate you from the love of Christ? Cancer. The death of a loved one. Natural disaster like a tornado. A terrorist attack. Nothing can separate you. Because you're called according to His purpose. You're His. You belong to Him. And nothing can change you. That's why John says that no one can snatch you out of His hand. All comfort. There's no law here. All gospel. All comfort. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Yes, we are in the world's perspective. But we know better. Back to what the first promise was. He's going, if these things happen in our life, if these things try to separate us from Jesus Christ, they're going to fail, and God is ultimately going to work them for our good, our eternal good. Because we have been called to be His according to His purpose by the word of the gospel. The final three verses are three verses that are well known. They are well known. Uh, pastors have used these for years in hospitals and nursing homes and at funerals because it sums up how God truly feels about His children. Those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. In other words, even when you get beat up in life by sickness, by circumstance, you're still a conqueror. You win. You win. Because Jesus Christ is on your side. Because nothing can condemn you. Because God is going to work even these things for your good. For your eternal good. 
So even in what the world would consider defeat, even in death itself, you are a conqueror. You're a victor. You win. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You belong to him. And one, come what may in this world, he will keep you in that faith. And the only person on earth that can change that is you. God has the power to save. You have the power to reject him. We're not going to talk about that today. These verses are meant to do nothing but comfort us. When we read the Lutheran confessions, our Lutheran fathers that were trying to explain things to us, they say that the doctrine of predestination is one of the most comforting in all of Scripture. Because for the Christian, it means that you are securely in God's hands. Nothing can condemn you. Nothing is more powerful than the God who holds you in His hands. You've been justified. You've been called. You are the child of God. And no one can snatch you from his hand. You are safely there. You can lead your life every day, and no matter how difficult it may be, it's going to be for your eternal good. The doctrine as we teach it for predestination is that God wants all to be saved, and he sends forth his word of the gospel, and the Holy Spirit works faith in people's hearts. And they are safely in the hands of God for all eternity. That's what you need to think about when you're thinking about election and predestination. Now let me tell you what's wrong. The first thing when people hear this, they want to say, well, what about the others? None of your business. None of your business. God tells us he'll handle that. All we are exhorted to do 
is to spread the word of Christ. And his word is so strong and so powerful that it can change hearts unless they reject it. We should rejoice in the fact that God has called us, predestined us. And we should be very concerned about the others. But all we can do to change it is not wring our hands, but to tell others of the gospel of Jesus Christ because that will change their heart. And is in the intention of God to save everybody. Everybody. So, there are certain questions. Why ask them? Because we don't have any of the answers. Trying to explain the Trinity with a real presence or the God-man Jesus Christ. The unanswerable question for human beings and it's been debated for years, and we're going to go into this to more detail of how others have tried to solve it. But the ultimate question of theology is, why are some saved and some damned? And the ultimate answer is, if you're saved, it's all God's doing. If you're damned, it's your own stupid fault. Now that's the bottom line. If you want to cut to the chase, that's the bottom line. That's the bottom line. Others have tried to solve that in other ways. But what I want you to do this week is not think about all that stuff. I just want you to think about the fact that you're God's child. You're the one he's talking about here. You're safely in his hand. He's done all these things for you. It is his intention so firmly, he calls it in the past tense, you're already glorified. that sure that you're going to heaven. And no matter how bad things on this earth get, and no matter what happens, you're going to heaven. And God says so. And God says so. That's what you need to think about this week. We'll get into some more of the details. And when you ask a question, I want you to ask questions next week. When you ask a question, I may just look at you and say, none of your business. You're messing with God here, okay? God makes those decisions. That's up to him. Here's what's up to us. Okay? If we question the doctrine of predestination, then all our comfort is gone.
And, and here's another thing. Don't ask yourself, well, am I predestined? Yes, you are if you ask that question, because if you weren't, you wouldn't care and you wouldn't ask the question. Let me say that again. You ask that question, you are, because if you weren't, you wouldn't ask the question and you wouldn't care. Okay? So, I want you to rejoice, do something you've never done this week, and say, I am happy as a clam, I'm predestined. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't screw this up by your own decision to decide against God. But we're not going there. You're not there. I just want you to rejoice all week in the fact that God has predestined, called, justified, glorified you. And nothing can change that. Nothing can change. That's the comfort that can be had here. That's the comfort that our Lutheran fathers knew would uh, come if we understand this correctly. Now, there's going to be things in the next three chapters that we just can't answer. They're beyond us. But there's a lot that will also be examples for us and, and help clear it even further that this is for our blessing. So, have a good week and remind yourself of who you are. Who you are. Let's close with prayer. Gracious God, sometimes your word is hard. But there is nothing more comforting than your word. Those verses we read today, you had Paul write so that we would be comforted. So that we would know we're safely in your hand. Bless us in that knowledge. Do not let reason and logic and the thoughts of this world consume your powerful, comforting word. Assure us, now and always, that we are your children and nothing can snatch us out of your hand. Bless us under your hand of care. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, next week, I guess it'll be a free-for-all. <laughs>